0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network
1: and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Today on the show, we have a special guest and a special topic. Mike, my friend Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, is going to be joining us. Mike lives in Manhattan, but he was calling in from Las Vegas, of all places. He's here to discuss the best debut novels of all time. That's today on the History of Literature. Okay, excellent. Here we go. Thank you again for all of the emails and comments. You really, uh, Help keep me going. I enjoy reading them. I'm glad that you're enjoying the show. And today, frankly, may spark a few more. We're talking about the best debut novels in history. If you want to comment, you can find me at jackwilson.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, Wilson.com, or jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. So today we have a guest. I've known Mike for a long time. He's a real reader, Someone with a true passion for fiction and novels. And he has some eclectic tastes. And we thought we'd get together and discuss this topic. Debut novels. I always value my discussions with him. He's read a lot. He's reads with an interesting insight. A bright, open mind. That's going to be coming up in a minute here. The topic that we'll be discussing, debut novels, was his idea and frankly i i jumped at the chance i thought it would be fairly easy uh we each get to choose five debut novels as the potentially best debut novels and even though i thought it would be easy at first i wound up making all kinds of lists uh filled sheets of notebook paper cross things out move things around arrows numbers circles um, a much more difficult project than I originally anticipated. I found that it was hard to decide what I value in a debut novel. And what what comes to mind when you say these are the best debut novels? Do you just take the best novels that happen to be the first ones published by that author? Or do you take the best authors or novelists uh, and see what their first auth- what their first book was? Do we value a book like the Pickwick Papers, because it launched a great novelist's career? Or is it better to, to look at a book like Invisible Man or To Kill a Mockingbird, which were the only real novels that they wrote? I'm not counting the, the posthumous books in either case. Uh, do we want the debut novels to announce something new? A new voice, a new sensibility, a new way of thinking? a new style or form, a new era, a new genre? Or do we like those novels that arrive fully formed, perfecting or culminating an era, a great age of novel writing? Does it have to be the author's best novel? We get into all of that. So, here we go. A conversation with my guest, my friend, Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club.
0: Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
1: Okay, I'm joined now by my guest. He's the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Welcome to the program.
2: Thanks. Good to be here.
1: Okay, so I had the idea for this draft, and you actually came up with the topic, which is uh debut novels, which I thought was great. I actually found it a little bit harder than I thought it would be. How did you find coming up with your list?
2: yeah, you know i skimmed I skimmed my bookshelves, and a lot of the books that in my head I thought of as first novels turned out not to be first novels, yeah, <laughs> so that that was a little frustrating uh and also um you know, some friends were pointing out the technicality that it, it, can we really think of it as a first novel like *Revolutionary Road* when Richard Yates has written a, a load of short stories before that. So, that that was another thing to consider.
3: Yeah,
1: yeah, that might that might uh, knock a couple off my list.
2: Yeah, and then and then I, I was thinking, is it fair to uh, talk about? And I have done so, but is it fair to talk about? first novels that I haven't read, um, because I, I hear that they're fantastic. So uh, I'm thinking of George Eliot's first novel, Adam Deed, which I've never read. I think it's Adam Bede. Adam Bede. Okay, yeah. That, sorry. There you go. Don't worry. That's which not a that, that, that even shows that, 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 <laughs> that, confirms I have not read it.
1: Right. So. I know what you mean though. I, I had a moment where I was worried that, uh, you know, I had left off Moby Dick, and then I I did the research and realized that it, his first novel was actually Typee, right? And then I thought, well, maybe I should maybe I should jump in and try to read that in case it's you know <laughs> in case it's deserving. And then I saw that the the subtitle of that book is A Peep at Polynesian Life, and I thought, <laughs> no no novel with the word peep in the subtitle is going to make this list. <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to let you have first pick. So why don't you go ahead
2: okay so i i no first novelist I think is complete without lucky chip Ooh. and it's one of the books I try to read every year, and I think of it as this perfect blend of romance and also capturing a cultural moment, the Angry Young Men movement in England, and it being a very very Narrow focus on a campus novel, um, being a campus novel, but, you know, appealing to so many people, because I think there were a lot of people who weren't, uh, academics who found in their jobs the same type of, uh, conflicted feelings that, uh, you know, Kingsley Amos captured in Lucky Jim. So in my mind, it's almost like a work novel, an a office novel.
1: Right. Yeah, that's a great pick. I didn't have that on my list, but now that you mention it, it actually hadn't even occurred to me, but it's one of the great things about Lucky Jim is it feels for this list, is it feels like a first novel. It feels very fresh and it feels like somebody is inventing a new way of looking at things and a new almost a new kind of humor to go into a a, a more serious novel. Um and it also fits into the category of something that I kept running across, which is books that are my favorite books by that author. Right. There's something about it when you kind of look back and think, I'm not sure the author ever did better than this book.
2: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I, I did encounter books where it was the first and best novel or the first and only novel. Right. Like, right. like The Bell Jar or, yep. you know, Picture Dorian Gray. Okay, so your, your turn.
1: I am going to take uh, Remembrance of Things Past by Marcel Proust, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is a very different book from uh, Lucky Jim. And you notice I'm calling it Remembrance of Things Past, even though I know the the current English title is In Search of Lost Time, which might be more literal, but I've always liked the title that comes from the phrase from the Shakespearean sonnet, and it just seems grander and And better to me. I I feel like the idea of searching for lost time is embedded within the remembrance of things past. But anyway, um, to me, this is clearly number one. Uh, It might be the greatest novel of all time, uh, at least in the top three, I think. And arguably, it might be the greatest human achievement of all time. I'm a little surprised you let this one go, Mike. I know you, you've read, maybe you've, uh, I think you've read at least part of it in French. Maybe that distorted your view. Maybe in, in French, it isn't as good as it is in English. But as an artistic achievement, it's really hard to beat. And I I heard this great story that they asked Stephen Hawking... Uh, what you'd find at the bottom of a black hole. And he said, the seven leather-bound volumes of Marcel Proust remembers the things past, which uh, <laughs> I don't know if he was making fun of it or or what, but for me, it's it's a black hole or it's maybe it's not a black hole. It's more like a, a constellation or a an exploding supernova or a rainbow. I, I'm guessing that you might've thought it was cheating a little bit, maybe because it wasn't exactly his debut. He had written those sketches before or Maybe you thought it was a little bit cheating that it's seven volumes. To call it a single novel is is kind of a stretch. But I just love the characters. I love the narrator. I had this experience, I think a lot of readers had this, where the narrator's uh, sensitivities kind of become our own sensitivities, where I found myself wanting to have marcel's mother come in and give me a good night kiss you know not my own mother but marcel's mother i wanted to be marcel you know i wanted to to be afraid of going to visit venice because i might have a nervous breakdown at at the beauty of it and i just uh the total inhabiting and the way that i cared about the things that marcel cared about for me it it was just sort of an experience like no other experience reading that novel so that's my number one pick
2: i you know i I considered it, but I didn't put it on the list because I feel that as he was writing it, he um, he sort of dispensed with the first novel problems that people have, and it feels like a first novel, but also like a, a middle middle aged uh, or last novel. But I, I agree with you. I mean, if maybe I would think of it as volume one, one of the best first novels ever.
1: Right, yeah, I guess it's a little odd for me to choose as a debut novel a, a book where, um, he, you know, he he finished the last volume and he wrote the words the end, and then later that day he died. So I guess it's like <laughs> first, last, and only novel.
2: <laughs> I mean, I I considered that in tandem with Buddenbrooks because when I think uh, of the the classic, the building's romance. Um, it, it, it seems that when you write a first novel, everyone must consider: shall I start with my childhood? Right. And it seems like it's a it's a it's an awful pitfall, because you basically arm yourself with the right to write about anything. But then Proust did that, and it was magnificent. So, um, uh-huh. Brooks is. I mean, I I don't have that on my um, top five, but I I considered it because. They probably lay like a lot of first novels. I love the the kind of blueprint for a lot of people who were like, "I want to write about three generations." You know, Garcia Marquez, or I mean, not that there are direct similarities, but I think Fiddler books really showed. Yeah, you can write three hundred pages about one generation, two hundred pages about another generation, then wrap it up with another two hundred pages. So, <laughs> right.
1: One of the problems with Proust, when you compare it with Lucky Jim, for example, is that it it's a hard book to recommend. It's not a book for everybody. It's not a <laughs> book that everybody reads. Lucky Jim, on the other hand, is is a book a lot of people maybe haven't discovered. You can easily recommend it, and, and people tend to uh, be surprised at how funny they find it.
2: Yeah. I mean, the, the language in Lucky Jim is fantastic. they there's artful phrasing, but then there are also lines like nicer girls are better than girls who are not nice or some kind of formulation like that. There are these like aphorisms where people are like, well, it's kind of crude to say this, but isn't it true? And Kingsley Amos comes out and says it.
1: Right. That was sort of the book before, um, some of his, the uglier sides of his personality, the more curmudgeonly sides. It's a lot more appealing when the curmudgeonliness is in the 25 year old than in the 55 year old. Yes.
3: Although
2: well, I did like old devils. Yeah, <laughs> I, I will throw in. That's
1: the one. Uh, That's the one. Yep. Okay, so what's your number two?
2: Uh, I go with Catch 22. Ooh. Which, yeah. Which um, I, I, I think, uh, again, another book that has broad appeal. Uh, you didn't have to be in the military. You didn't have to be a. Um, a sarcastic, funny, class clown to enjoy it. Um, although, you know, if, if you were that sort, then it, it, I'm sure the book was fantastic. For someone to write a first book like this, where it doesn't have a lot of structure and it's very character driven, and I think it's voice driven in a way that, um, a lot of first novels try to be, but fail. Right. Because Voice driven first novels that aren't good are, um, really just sort of in your head without adhering to the standards that third person would require. Um, so, and, and again, it's another book that I think I think of it in tandem with something happened by him, which I also love the way his, his humor evolved and something happened to something darker. I don't know if you've read Something Happened, but each chapter is, it has great titles, like, and it's it's very offensive. The first chapter is, like, Why I Hate My Job. The second chapter is Why I Hate My Life. My wife, sorry. <laughs> and the third chapter is Why I Hate My um, Mentally Developed, Mentally Retarded Son. So it, it just comes at you. So
1: I can see a, a pattern developing here. Um, I'm going to take my <laughs> next pick, which is uh, Madame Bovary by Flaubert. Um <laughs> I think you are outpacing me on the humor front. Um, I don't. I don't know that there's a, a single moment in either Proust or Flaubert that uh, would rival anything in Lucky Jim or Catch Twenty Two for just laugh out loud uh, possibilities. Madame Bovary. It. You know, of course, it was almost not his first book. He wrote The Temptation of Saint Anthony first, and he read it to some friends, and they told him it was too lush, and he should burn it. Uh, so, so he did, and then he he retreated to write Bovary, and his quote from that era was, it's high time I either succeed or jump out a window, which is <laughs> sort of the uh, devotion to to great literature and great art. The devotion of, of Flaubert to getting a, a novel perfect, I think, has really cascaded throughout and novel writing everywhere. That he kind of invented the idea that you would have no word of, out of place in a novel, and he. I think part of him kind of admired um, or envied in a way the novelists like Dickens and, and Hugo and Cervantes and people like that that would just kind of let things rip and and didn't have to sculpt the prose so carefully uh, where every word had to be in in place and you could never use a cliche or anything like that. And he, he said, uh, I'm stuck with atrocious labor and fanaticism.
2: <laughs> I love Flaubert and uh i'm I'm glad to say that I have read the two picks of yours and it it's interesting because when I recommend books fifteen years ago when people asked me what book do you recommend i would I would recommend a lot of books um before nineteen twenty two which is when Magic Mountain was read, who was written but the the quizzical looks and the people with half promises, oh yeah, maybe I'll do that um disappointed me and you know, I mean people have less time than me and require more sleep than me. So I started recommending more, um, more contemporary books and getting a much better reaction. Right. Um, because they, they, you know, people wanted to read Michael Chabon because everybody knew who he was. And uh, it, it kind of taught me that there's something to be said for, um, being able to engage more than just me. That, that said, uh, there's still a part of me that just wants to tell people, oh, you should just you know read The Magic Mountain. Right. Um, so, but it, it, it's interesting that you've gone with pre-1922 books. I'm looking at my list. Lucky Jim was written in 1954. Catch 22 was written in 1961. Um, and again, that these are two books I've recommended to many people, with the idea that you know they, they don't have to feel as removed from Uh, society when they're reading something like Proust or Thomas Mann.
1: Right. There's books like uh, White Teeth and um, Brick Lane. And, you know, there's certainly there is something very appealing about that for the reasons that you mentioned. You don't have to put on your time traveler's hat and and imagine yourself back into 19th century France. Yeah.
2: I mean, I, White Teeth was on my list along with uh, Mysteries of Pittsburgh by Michael Ch- Chabon on my, you know, on my secondary list of, you know, and, and Nicholson Baker's The Mezzanine and books that I've gotten a lot of mileage in cocktail parties or, you know, um, coffee conversations where I bring up this book. And it turns out one other person at the table has read it or really wanted to read it and you can engage them in a way that Brings people who haven't read it into the conversation, whereas, you know, something like Balzac, I've 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 stopped many a conversation (laughs) by bringing up Balzac. Right, a
1: lot of looks. I can remember I used to buy the mezzanine for people. I was so excited to have them read it.
2: Oh, it's a fantastic first book. It is, and it,
1: it really sort of sets out his career. That's the other thing that I liked about some of these first books is the way it they pave the way for, for an author's career. You kind of see all the seedlings of their ideas and, and their sensibility right there in the first book. I think you're on the board for number three.
2: Okay, so I went back in time to <laughs> show all, all my... All my talk about trying to connect with people today uh, to Frankenstein, eighteen eighteen. Yep. And, you know, in case people don't know the classic story that Mary Shelley was spending um, a long weekend—I guess what we would consider a long weekend—in uh, in the Alps with Lord Byron and uh, I forget who else was there, um, Lord Shelley—and uh, sitting around a log fire. You know, um, there was thunder, lightning, snow. Uh, Around them, and they they all decided to try to write a ghost story. And um, Mary Shelley, not having written a novel before, was probably the long shot. And she came up with Frankenstein, which I always love that story, and I think that's a story that should be told to all kids as very inspirational, and maybe also as kind of a, a way to ward off scary feelings at night. Yep, that's a great pick. Yeah, I, I think it's it's really kind of the, a testament to it is the way it's entered our popular culture. And I'm thinking of Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein, which I almost think of as like literary work now. <laughs> right. It's,
1: it is great. It's one of those books that is sort of, it was a, a debut novel, but then it also had this life of its own, kind of like The Hobbit or, you know, a book like that, that that almost launched an entirely new genre. I mean, the, the Frankenstein's monster is something that pop culture is, you know, every kid knows what that is. I had this on my list as well. And I did a little research and the people who were at this party, and I agree, that's the origin story of this is just fantastic. It's like, if you sent a bunch of cooks into a kitchen to to see what they could come up with and and someone invented apple pie and ice cream or something you know it's just like to come up with just a classic like that almost as a party game is uh is really inspiring and it it turns out so the four people who were there who participated in this game were uh Mary Shelley her husband uh Percy Shelley Lord Byron and then a fourth guy named uh John Polidori and it turns uh, out that the story he wrote i had never heard of him but it turns out that the story he wrote was called the vampire v a m p y r e and it's considered to be the first vampire story in english so
3: what really
1: yeah. so wow so that was quite a weekend uh <laughs> <laughs> wow that that's
2: another dark horse coming yeah. in
1: <laughs> right so byron and shelley uh percy shelley were the slackers on this uh but the real hero here is Mary Shelley with Frankenstein, just a, a classic book uh, coming out of this unusual situation. It's a great pick. I'm jealous that you got it. <laughs> but I, for my third pick, am going to take uh, a portrait of the artist as a young man, James Joyce. Uh, that
2: that was my next pick.
1: <laughs> and this this one, I think, is maybe the the best example of what you had talked about before, where can you really call it a debut if somebody... Uh, has come out with short stories because he, of course, mastered the form with the Dubliners. It's just a great novel, and he's a great novelist. If if I wouldn't have taken Proust as the greatest novel of all time, I probably would take Ulysses. And Portrait of the Artist might be almost as good. It might be more readable uh, if you're recommending a, a book to someone. It tells the story, of course, of a boy suffused with religion, kind of turning into someone who's taking art as his religion. What I like about it is that Joyce clearly could have written a book like Madame Bovary. Uh, that's essentially what the Dubliner stories are. He He's writing in that style. And instead, he uh, decided that the novel needed to go in new directions. It feels very modern in that sense. And He was pushing the limits of the form, which ultimately he would push further in Ulysses and, of course, Finnegan's Wake, uh, where it maybe pushes a little too far. But this is where Joyce is kind of writing at the height of his powers. The fact that he didn't write a realistic novel, it kind of reminds me of Picasso, if you've ever seen those sketches, where he he could draw a chicken that looks just like a photograph, and instead, when it comes time to to create his masterpieces he decides that his vision needs to be something a little bit different and joyce feels to me like somebody who was doing the same thing where he he could do a realistic short story he could have done a realistic novel and instead he decided to you know start to experiment with language and and some of the other themes and we wound up he probably changed the course of novel writing
2: yeah i mean i i i have him on my list because i I, I, there was a nagging part of me that was that was saying you have to have choice on your list, any list. And um <clears throat> I thought I immediately of Dubliners because to me that's kind of his first novel. That's interesting. And has that kind of first novel feel where you're like, Oh, I like Araby and I like the dead a lot some of the other stuff. Like they're parts I like, but you know, it has the unevenness that I, I associate with first novels. Um but then you know, Portrait of an Artist is really almost like a blueprint for first novel, so I did have it on my list. But now I'll have to I'll have to go back to my bench.
1: <laughs> you know, the thing about, about Portrait, though, is in some ways he almost retired the form. The idea that you change the language for a boy to be more like the language that a boy would, would be using, and it's kind of a, uh, it's almost become a cliche now, it's sort of a uh, you know, admire it in this book and then don't try it at home kind of thing.
2: <laughs> All right. So for my fourth pick, um, I, I chose Catcher in the Rye yep. from 1951. And I, I, I do put an asterisk, I do put an asterisk that, um, it, it, it really is something that when, you know, you talk about when you read Madame Bovary, when I read Catcher in the Rye when I was 14, um, it just blew me away. And you know, The Hobbit is the first novel too, and I think, you know, when I read The Hobbit I, I had that similar feeling, you know, that all, all my feelings about literature being kind of limited. I think a lot of kids kind of approach fiction as as, as limiting. It's it's not true. It's you know it it, it, it um only deals with a certain aspect. I think mean, catching the rye sort of opened up the whole world as something to be um, looked down on and mocked and played with. And so I know it, it, it's an unusual first novel on my list because I'm never going to reread it. And in my mind, the criteria for the books that I love are is can you reread it? And, and now as I get older, the criteria for the books on my shelf are, uh, shelves are, is there any possibility I'll reread it before I die? And Catching the Rye, I will never touch it again. But, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I reread Fanny and Zoe. I reread C. Martin Introduction. I reread, um, you know, some of the short stories, uh, for Esme with Love and Squalor by Salinger. I mean, but Catching the Rye, I, I think I tried to pick it up <laughs> probably about 10 years ago and I was like, oh, like, <laughs> this, this, this is silly. Um, but right. as for a 14 year old, it's, it's, um, Again, it speaks to you no matter how not privileged or, you know, um, happy a kid you are. I think, you know, you don't have to be a prep school rebel to enjoy this book.
1: Right. It's a great pick. I had it on my list as well, and I I crossed it off for some of the same reasons that you've identified. Uh, I think 20 years ago it would have been in my top five probably, and it hasn't held up that well for me. But I recognize it still has kind of a magical power on young people who come to it at a certain point in their life. It's amazing at how well it it has done that, even though it's you know I don't know cl- close to sixty years old. Um, I'd probably reread Catch Twenty Two before I'd go back to to Catcher in the Rye. I'm not sure I would ever read it again either. I think the uh, I, I find it a little bit stunted now and and a little bit sad. Uh, But it's a beautiful book. And of course, it's, it's hugely influential. It's, it's still read and still loved. And uh, for, you know, it's a, it's good for this list, the debut novel list, because for a lot of people, it's sort of the, the first real novel that they read um, in and engage with in kind of a literary sense. So it's still got that. uh, it's, It's sort of a first book in that sense.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think of that book as, you know, you think of the first real novel you ever read, the kind of like the, the door opening, uh, and I think of this book, I think of I, Robot by I, Asimov, I think of Hitchhiker's Guide, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide is the first novel, but I think it you know, when you're a kid and you read that, you, you're, you just, you sit back, you, you look back and think like, oh my gosh, I could have missed appreciating this book. It's a it's a fantastic feeling that there are all these books out there now, and now that I, you know, I've enjoyed this one, let me try to find another book like Catch Twenty Two or you know Catch and the buy
1: That's right. I had a close friend in high school who that had was literally the only book he had finished, Um, and he called me. He he read it in college, (laughs) and he called me up to tell me that he had finished a book. Um, So. Something good about that. So, I'm gonna cheat a little bit with my number four pick, which is I'm gonna take a pair of books, um, which is *Jane Eyre* by Charlotte Bronte and Withering Heights* by Emily Bronte. Uh, I can't really pick between them. They're sort of like John Lennon and Paul McCartney or something. You 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 think you're most in love with one, and then you're most in love with the other. I think if i didn't pair them up they might be a little bit lower but i'm just astonished that these books were written by these sisters these sort of pinnacles of novel writing in the 19th century and for two sisters to come out with debut novels that are as good as these just seems like lightning striking you know twice or three times or whatever the whatever the odds are against it and i think both are probably in the top 15 or 20 english novels of all time I was kind of amazed when I did the research and made sure that they were both debut novels to think of two sisters coming out with debut novels as good as this. And they're, they're so different in a way. I mean, Jane Eyre is kind of classic perfection with a great story and a great heroine and and it has Rochester and his secret, but Wuthering Heights is wild and and full of energy and dark and you have Heathcliff of the Moors as a, a, a completely different type of hero than Rochester it's kind of the uh, Kobe Bryant and Tim Duncan or Hemingway or Fitzgerald or Ginger or Marianne or, you know, Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights. It's that same kind of of dilemma that it's impossible to choose between.
2: Yeah, I I, I, I considered Jane Eyre, but then it, it fell into the category. Of, I, I've never read it. So I'm feeling guilty <laughs> now. I'm thinking maybe I should make that my spring reading through Jane Eyre and Wuthering Heights.
1: I have read all the books on your list. Let me let me say that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, that's why I'm gonna I'm gonna end with a, a quirky one to make sure that you and many of your listeners probably have never read it. Um, I, I go with The Broom of the System by David Foster Wallace, which um, he wrote as an undergrad at Amherst, um, and published in while he was getting his first year in the MFA program at, at U Arizona uh to the consternation of his teachers who have been berating his um writing submissions all semester. And when the really the system comes out, it gets fantastic reviews, perplexing reviews, which is exactly what Wallace wanted. The the novel ends mid sentence. It has really no structure. Um but I think people recognize that there was something gnawing at Wallace and He 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 was searching for answers in this book, Um, but I I I think it's you know I I liken it to *Crime of Lots* forty nine and you know some of the other people that Wallace was in love with Pynchon and Gaddis and um, I think as a first novel it has the kind of noble failure that all first novelists should aim for if they can't write Madame Bovary um, for, for instance I'll, you know I think you know Michael Chabon says that the way he put Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay together was he had written one novella and one long piece that he didn't know what to do with and he combined them together to make Mysteries uh, you know Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay and his rationale was the writing carries the day. Good writing carries the day. And even though there's a little contrived section, I don't know if you've read Amazing Adventures, but there's a a bit of a standalone section in the Arctic Circle. uh, And a lot of people think of that as their favorite section. And it it was basically a standalone novella that he, you know, combined with the whole comic book story. So, But Room of the System um, has a a female main character, Lenore, who is being wooed by um, a not-so-attractive boyfriend who is starting a literary journal. And in my mind, the core of the the novel is all these people are submitting stories to the literary journal. And the boyfriend gets it in his head that he's going to convince... His Lenore to love him by showing her three stories. I mean, it's, it's very contrived. But the three stories he picks, which are written in the, contained in the book, are, in, in my mind, the classic David Foster Wallace moves, uh, and are kind of cipher keys to, uh, Infinite Jest and The Pale King. So you could see that he had that ambition. He he wanted to write *Infinite Jest*. I think for his first novel, um, but he had to he had to you know put that in a drawer because it was too unwieldy. It's like that story with like Chang Ray Li. Chang Ray Li loved Pynchon, and he wrote a uh, a one thousand page novel. That was his first novel, but then he put it down because he couldn't stop it. It right. kept growing, and then he ended up writing *Native Speaker*.
1: Right. I don't know David Foster Wallace as well as you do, but it, it there does seem to me to be something uh, about him as kind of a classic uh, person who set up problems. Um, he identified problems more than other people, and whether he could solve those problems or not, it doesn't surprise me to hear that he was, you know, needed to clear his mind of the dilemmas around writing novels or something, if that's what you're describing you
2: yeah I mean he he it's interesting he started a friendship he initiated a friendship with Jonathan Franzen um by letter writing which is just I mean I love this story because it just would not happen today I mean you're you're Jonathan Franzen you're going through your your fan mail and you see this letter from Dave Wallace who you know of because you've seen his short stories in journals and you know and you open it up and it's a 12-page letter basically saying like, what do you think literature, what do you think characters in literature should do? <laughs> and Franzen's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so Franzen writes back to him, and then Fox comes back with like a 30-page letter about realism. Like, it, 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 is realism possible? And so they start this friendship. Um, and then Wallace goes to visit Franzen, who's been married at the time to this uh, experimental um, Sci fi writer who he later divorces, but the two of them are living in Boston. Franzen is working as a janitor at uh, Harvard or MIT, and the two of them are both working on their first novels, never leaving the apartment. And Wallace, who's, you know, we all know some of his, you know, depression and his backstory, he goes to visit them, and they go, Franzen and his girlfriend go out once a year on their anniversary. Otherwise, they don't eat out. They stay at home, pop the soup to save money, and they're working on their novel. And Wallace turns Franzen and says, dude, you guys are in the bell jar. And I just think, you know, for Wallace to have made that comment, it just shows right. the, the, the the devotion that Franz and is wife of the time had to try to try to finish something. So I think, you know, Wallace was really trying to, Find people to engage him in the questions of literature that he thought should be important, and um, Broom of the System is almost like criticism
3: in that sense.
1: Right. Yeah, he's he's clearly um, a brain that's working on a, a level that most people never get to. Um, even people who don't love his his writings, I think, recognize that he was basically a a genius and sort of the smartest guy in every room uh it is interesting that he picked out franzen and and recognized something in franzen's work that i think he needed to explore and resist and push up against um for his own writing
2: all right time for your last pick
1: okay so um i'm looking at what i have and i'd like to to pick something a little bit different, although I'm not really departing from anything. I really don't have anything uh I don't know if you're right. I'm I'm sort of everything I have is almost a hundred years old or more. <laughs> <laughs> um and I'm I'm not really gonna depart from that here. I'm gonna take uh The Trial by Franz Kafka. Uh. You know, this one I I guess I probably chose the books that were old. Maybe I just have the respect for the, the greatest hits or I think novels sort of maybe have faded in importance or have spun themselves out a little bit or, you know, maybe I'm just admiring the the giants of prehistory uh, who walked the earth when novel writing was at its most important or its, its grandest. Uh, the Trial is different. The trial's one I think could be written today. Um, Kafka is you know the prose might get a little bit creaky today or you know you you definitely aren't you wouldn't confuse it for something that was written you know um that was written this year or anything like that but the the themes and the feelings of fear and hopelessness and futility those to me i recognize today i i it feels almost like a a religious text where i i recognize my own uh, faith or my own uh, deepest uh, psychological insights, the things that I recognize about my world and, and myself feel like Kafka was there first. He was the and sort of the first and the best. He was putting all that down on paper. And of course, I love the story of how he would have his manuscripts and, and read them out loud and just dissolve into laughter because he was finding them. So... Uh, <laughs> So hilarious, and uh, most people read them and they find them a little, a little bleak and dark, and and just terrifying. And instead, you know, here's Kafka, um, cracking himself up with the, (laughs) with the same ideas. I think his humor. I share his humor. I think that's maybe part of it. I heard this great story about him when he was in the hospital. He was dying of tuberculosis, and he read this article about Einstein's theory of relativity, which had just come out. And so he clipped the article and he wrote a note on the top and said, um, this has been found to cure tuberculosis. And he sent it to his family as a joke, you know, sort of like, oh, great. You know, here's science is doing all this for, you know, these, they're making all these discoveries. Why doesn't somebody discover something that's going to help me? And uh, his family didn't understand the joke. And so they got really hopeful and they, they were, you know, really excited that, that their beloved uh, brother and son was going to beat the tuberculosis, and and then he had to tell them that he had actually meant this as a joke, and that he actually <laughs> he was actually still as doomed as ever. And you know, just the idea that the people who weren't in on his joke would would feel like, well, why are you even laughing about that? You know, that's kind of Kafka in a nutshell. You know, <laughs> you 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 read Kafka, and you think, I get that this is. Absurd and sort of funny. And why are you even joking about this? This is too painful to laugh at. But uh, that's what I love about Kafka, and that's that's why I chose the trial.
2: Yeah, I mean that's that that's a lovely moment that he's laughing at his own stuff. I think you know too often. You know, writing is is depicted as this tortured process, and I think it is. But th- there must be some moments where a writer, um, you know, is coming up with. <laughs> Uh, you know, character or a scene, and thinking like th- th- this is just perfect. This is you know nobody's done it, and this is this is right.
1: Yeah. So, so your list, uh, you have Lucky Jim, Catch Twenty Two, Frankenstein, Catcher in the Rye, and The Broom of the System, and my list, uh, Remembrance of Things Past, Madame Bovary, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, uh, Jane Eyre slash Wuthering Heights, and The Trial. Those two pretty good lists. Um. What was the hardest book for you to leave out?
2: You know, I I did my undergraduate thesis on Roland Barthes' mythologies and the <laughs> Invisible Man, oh. and so it was it was hard for me to leave out the Invisible Man. I think Ralph Ellison. Oh. Um, that really was a true first novel, and I think you know the 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 respect and subtlety with which he handled race. think it would have been easy you know a lot of people kind of bookend invisible man versus native son and i I don't think that's fair i I think you know there are good elements to native son also but when you compare you know what he was trying to do in invisible man versus native son i think the scope of ambition there's no comparison um so that that was really tough The the other one uh I had a problem leaving out was Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor because I, I just love that book, the, the the Church of Jesus Christ without Christ, and um, I think it, almost every character in there could almost um, that, you know merit their own novel. It's it's kind of like Confederacy of Dunces, but that's the third one I you know I had a problem leaving out.
1: Right, I had those on my. I didn't have Wise Blood on my list because I haven't read it, but. Um, I did have Confederacy of Dunces and Invisible Man was my number six as well. That oh. <laughs> it was the toughest one to leave out. I know that, you know, uh, jazz is, is probably the right metaphor, but for some reason, when I was thinking about this book and what he poured into it, I was thinking of Prince's Purple Rain album of like, just, you know, it was sort of all there, like everything, all the themes, all the concerns, all the intellectual engagement or just the music of it like it just doesn't leave anything out and it's it's a great book yeah. it's it's still great uh it was really hard to leave out and it it also has one of those great stories kind of a tragic story around it of you know that his second book was destroyed in the fire and and he ran around and and had to ask his friends that he had read sections of it too if they could remember anything about it and he, it it kind of destroyed him that his years of effort were lost and, and it kind of makes invisible man all the much better in some ways that it, it's the one that we have. Um, I know they came out with another one of his that, um, posthumously, but invisible man is kind of the, the, uh, it, it's, it's a monument to, uh, a great writer and, and what he was able to deliver.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, and, and, and it It also highlights the fact that you know um when we talk about first novels, we can't help but think of the breadth of the, the the entire writer's work because you know if if in a vacuum you compare broom of the system versus invisible man it is you know how can you say that broom of the system is a should be on your list and knock off invisible man but I think lurking in that background is infinite jest. so Right, That definitely influenced my way of thinking, you know, what else is there out there? Because if, if we're talking about, and that's why I was, I, I you know, I started making a short list of first and only novels because Confederacy of Dunces would definitely make that list. Right. You know, I mean, to, to produce one and, you know, you look at someone like David Gates, who's written three books in um, 58 years. I mean, if you're going to just write three books... Um, you know, David Gates's body of work is, is amazing, you know, and maybe that's, that's another conversation, um, Jack, where we compare like, Hey, okay, let's take three books of any, any writer and, and see, cause you know, Fitzgerald or at right, this side of paradise, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not going to reread, but you know, Tenors at Night and Beautiful and the Damned and uh, Great Gatsby, I think that that's a pretty solid trio.
1: That is interesting, it's kind of like that debate of uh when you're talking about a Hall of Fame player in baseball, do you look at their peak years and and measure their greatness that way, like maybe the six seasons they had and and if those six seasons, like for a Pedro Martinez or somebody are is you know comparable in excellence to anyone's six seasons, maybe that should mean more than somebody who pitched well for twenty years and compiled a lot of career statistics.
2: And the other side we could do is like take it take people's ten novels. You know, I think those Carol Oates and Philip Roth. I mean it'd be interesting to try to stack up their best (laughs) ten. Right. I don't know who else would make that list. I mean who else is you know can you can you can people even name ten novels by by a writer?
1: Right. Well Dickens is the one that comes to mind too because I was thinking about Pickwick papers. And ultimately, I decided it couldn't be in my top five of debut novels because it wouldn't even be in my top five of Dickens' best novels. So (laughs) there had to be others that were better. Another interesting idea would be uh, worst first novels by uh, the best authors. Um, And, you know, Soldier's Pay by William Faulkner might be at the top of my list for that one. (laughs) It's not a book I'll be returning to anytime soon. Henry James is another one. Roderick Hudson is uh, is uh, <laughs> not the not the first one I'm going to be sending people on uh, through my Amazon account.
2: Yeah, and then and then there you know there are those first books that I think I'll read before I die, but I just haven't gotten around to like um, Sal Bellow's Dangling Man. I, I just feel like I should read it, but I just whenever I think like oh maybe I'll read it now, I I lose the the energy dissipates.
3: Yeah.
1: I had that one on my list at first, and then I moved it to the other side of the list when I realized um what you know great books I would be leaving out by by putting that one on there and I'm a little surprised you didn't sneak in uh, the sun also rises the uh oh. you know the the thing about that book it, it might be the only rereadable Hemingway book or maybe the only rereadable Hemingway novel. Uh, it's one that i've read a couple of times and even people who don't like hemingway tend to like that book and a movable feast um and then the rest you know it it almost feels like he never he never again recaptured that that freshness and that energy it's it's sort of one of those classic debut novels kind of like lucky jim where you feel like um the author had something to say in a new way of saying it, and is is it's exciting at first, and then maybe it it develops into a routine or a cliche after that.
2: Yeah, I I I consider that um kind of a quasi first novel, just because of all the short stories he had published before that. So that that that's why I left off off the list. I do agree with you that um, much of Hemingway is unreadable today.
1: And then the other one I wanted to mention is The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, which is a great book. I think if Beloved had been her first book, it would have made my top five for sure. But The Bluest Eye was just a, a close yeah. miss.
2: I, I also, before before we end this, I just want to say that, um, you know, all of our books, um, except for your two, actually Interestingly, three of your five books were not written in English. Um, right. And uh, I, I left out The Tin Drum, even though I love that book, because, um, I don't know, I, tr- I try to stick with books written in English. I think, that I, I feel like I can't quite evaluate um, the prose in a, in a foreign book in a way that I could in English, and I think probes is such an important part of a first novel when you're coming out of the gates with, with your voice. So, yeah, But a good you, point. you disregarded that. <laughs>
1: yeah. I, I think I took, even though I don't read French, I took other people's word for it. That, uh, <laughs> that Proust and, Lydia and, Davis. yeah, you know, it's interesting that, uh, uh, when you mentioned that I, I tried really hard to find a Russian novel. It felt like this was, uh, <laughs> underrepresented. Um, I tried really hard to get a Russian novel on here because I felt like, you know, France and, and America and the UK and Russia are sort of the four, uh, I think of them as the four great novel traditions, uh, for, as far as nations go. And, and, you know, Tolstoy, I thought might be a candidate, but I've never read childhood. And i my suspicion is that it's not very good. And <laughs> Dostoevsky was the other one, but, uh, uh, unfortunately, poor folk was his first novel, which uh, again is is not one that I've read and and probably won't one that I won't be reading anytime soon. <laughs> okay, well, thanks for joining me here. I think this was a lot of fun, and uh, I'm I'm not let's sure. Let's do it again. I think yeah, let's do it again. I think readers w- or listeners would probably uh, uh, f- have their own opinions on which of us has the stronger list. I think we uh, have pretty two pretty good rosters here. For debut uh, novels,
2: I, I want to add because I, I feel like a lot of people comment like, "I can't believe you left this off the list." I, I just want to say, um, "Sense and Sensibility" and yes. um, and the Bell Jar and Lord of the Flies and Speedboat by Renata Adler.
1: Ah, <laughs> uh, yep, very good. Doctor Zhivago <laughs> and Sense and Sensibility. <laughs> I had as a backup in case you stole the Brontes away from me. I was going to come in with that one. Um, yeah. And I think we've mentioned most of the others that I had written down here. A Study in Scarlet, some people love, is the first Holmes Watson book. Oh, right. right. Which is kind of an interesting debut. Um, <laughs> Gone with the Wind had no chance to make my list. Um, and Harry Potter is an interesting one. I don't know if 50 years from now people will be looking at that as uh, sort of a debut um, that would make any any anyone's top five. But I guess we'll see. Okay, well, thanks very much for joining me.
2: All right, thanks for having me.
1: Okay, that's it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, for joining me. Man. Looking at these lists, I feel a little bit like John Lennon during the Revolver recording sessions. First heard here, there, and everywhere, and he said to Paul, I might like your songs better than mine. Anyway, good list for Mike. I think I'll go reread Frankenstein and read Wise Blood for the first time. I love Flannery O'Connor. Why did I never read this before? If you'd like to join the conversation, send us an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com or a comment, leave us a comment at jackwilson.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, Wilson.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, you could always leave us a review on iTunes, show us some love, some big time love, or even a little bit of love. Five-star rating is just a click away. Thank you again for all your support. I truly appreciate it.